Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deeper look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design. We devised a program, basically, where we decided not to go for a targeted area. We were just going to find some sort of hole in the sky uh, that was truly indistinguished. Uh, Take two weeks of the telescope time and take image after image in four different filters. We wanted color information because there is scientific information about the characteristics uh, that you get from that. And... Thus was born the idea of the Hubble Deep Field. So about nine months after all of this happened, this image, the Hubble Deep Field, emerged, which basically, this is a color picture that is reconstructed from the four filters that we used of 345 separate images, roughly 45 minutes each, that we electronically added up. So not knowing what we were going to get, again, this was very risky, Hubble Deep Field came out of this. And so the good news was, there was a lot of stuff out there. It wasn't just a blank field. That was the former director of the Space Telescope Science Institute, Dr. Robert Williams, describing how the historic image of 3,000 never-before-seen galaxies, known as the Hubble Deep Field, came to be. In the mid-1990s, when the image became public, it revolutionized our understanding of the universe. If 3,000 galaxies existed in what was, from our vantage point, only a spot of sky no bigger than the head of a pin held out at arm's length, then what about the other pinhead fields of sky? How many pinheads would fill the visible sky? So never mind how many angels might dance on the head of a pin, the question now before the modern astronomer was, how many galaxies might be hiding behind the head of a pin? Not only was it time to recalculate how many galaxies might exist in the universe, But how many untold multitudes of stars now existed? We simply have no names for the kind of numbers needed to take an accurate census of all the stars in the universe. As the Lord teased Abram somewhat, quote, Count the stars if you are able, end quote. God's challenge to Abram remains unanswered. But he alone knows. The Bible tells us that God himself names and numbers all the stars. It should indeed humble us, and if nothing else, leave us somewhat at a loss for words.
Telescopes have indeed revolutionized our understanding of the universe, but words and numbers do finally run out of explanatory steam when we try to articulate the size, the scope, the grandeur, the depth, and the wonder of the heavens. As the 19th Psalm proclaims, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse shows forth his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. And yet, this declaration of knowledge and glory and speech is silent. There are no audible words, but we nevertheless comprehend that there is something fantastically beyond words in relation to what we see in the heavens. In this regard, we finally cannot rightly say that the heavens are mostly empty. Indeed, they are not. They are constantly brimming over with speech, with knowledge, with secret treasures of darkness and hidden mysteries, waiting for the kings of the earth to uncover. Just as Dr. Williams and his team at the Space Telescope Science Institute did in 1995. As the proverb says, quote, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. End quote. So next time someone tells you that space is mostly empty, ask them if they've really looked. This all brings to mind a scene from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the four Pevensey children find themselves in a wonderfully capacious and somewhat mysterious house of an old professor. One rainy day, the children begin exploring the house and stumble upon an empty room, with the exception of a large wooden wardrobe. One of the children proclaims that there is nothing in the room and quickly exits. But the youngest, Lucy, stays behind and decides to explore the wardrobe. She soon finds, to her surprise, that the wardrobe is unlocked. She is even more stunned to discover that, rather than a typical container for clothing, it is actually a portal into another world. So what you think about the universe? either as mostly empty space or as brimming over with declarations of God's glory, all depends on the lens through which you see it. While by no means exhaustive in our historical overview of the telescope, Wayne and I nevertheless hope that it will sharpen your focus and devotion to the one who created you and knows you and calls you by name. Come and see. Yeah, so as time went on, there began to be more and more different types of telescopes, and I think it was it was mainly after World War II that you started seeing all the more advanced things like uh, radio telescopes and X-ray telescopes, and yeah, the the fascinating thing about radio telescopes, and we're sort of jumping ahead, but uh, yeah. We'll recommend some resources, but radio telescopes. So we're talking about when we're talking about in general, big picture here. We're talking about um, devices for collecting light, collecting and focusing 
light. And what we mean by light is not only just in in the early op- days of optics with uh, um, uh, Huygens and Galileo and uh, Lippershey and we're talking about light that could be visible with the naked eye, which is just a small sliver of, of what we now know to be the electromagnetic spectrum. And so uh, fascinating idea that, uh, you know, radio waves are on the lower end of the electromagnetic spectrum, invisible light to our naked eye. But if you had the right device, you could conceivably, quote unquote, see what your eye could not see. And so the advent of radio telescopes. But it was, I want to talk about this for just a second, uh, William Herschel, 18th, 19th century, uh, late late 18th, early 19th century, was the first to suggest uh, invisible light in terms of infrared. He did studies yes, yes. about light uh, and heat. Uh, he didn't quite get it all. He, he, he really, he was onto something, but he didn't fully figure it out. But he knew from his experiments that there was such a thing as invisible light. He thought heat and light were kind of separate, but he did come up with the idea that there was light that the human eye couldn't see. And so the, the research into, he, 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 he stumbled upon infrared light, which we now know to be at the, the lower end of the electromagnetic spectrum. Light yes. that we can see. We can't see with our eyes, but light, if you had the right device that you could detect. And now the, the cutting edge telescope that's out there in space, James Webb, is really an ancestor of... Herschel's stumbling upon the idea of invisible infrared light because that's what that telescope is trained to see. Very faint infrared light in the deepest recesses of the universe. How cool is that? Just like 200 years later, we go from Herschel's little study looking at fire to uh, the James Webb Space Telescope looking at fire in the very earliest parts of the universe. I think yeah, so, cool. so over the years, science has uh, advanced a lot. We've become able to do amazing things uh, in astronomy and i th- there's another controversy worth mentioning since we're talking about light yeah it, there was a controversy between christian huygens and isaac newton uh because both of them studied light but newton was explaining light as particles he called it the corpuscular theory Yes. And Huygens looked at light more as a wave. So Huygens developed wave theory and and Newton looked at it more in terms of rays of, and the direction of particles in motion. But Newton had some problems with explaining certain things. So he, Newton's corpuscular idea worked for certain things, but it didn't work for everything. And mm. Huygens' approach, looking at it as a wave, explains some things better than Newton. So they were both right on some things because light tends to act both ways at different mm-hmm. in different situations. So and, here was the precursor to quantum mechanics, in a sense. Well, yeah, light is very special. It's very unique, and it has kind of a dual nature. Um depending on how, what you're doing you how you're can, measuring it yeah you can treat it as a particle in certain things and you can treat it as a wave so but but it's the light is a wave that became more important in explaining a lot of practical things that could be done with light including mm-hmm. telescopes and other things so christian huygens explained 
the wave nature of light and really made some important discoveries from that. And it's fascinating to me too, Wayne, because this is one of my most favorite topics in all of astronomy and in physics is the dual nature, at least from our perspective of, of, of light. Um, and I yeah. know the uh, the physicist turned Anglican priest, uh, the late John Polkinghorne, describes in one of his books, short books that he read, um, that uh, if God is light, which the Bible tells us that he is, God is light. In terms of spirituality, God enlightens us with the truth of his word. But we also know that God said in Genesis, let there be light. And so light, here, here's, a, here's a duality of light as, as, as a linguistic metaphor. Light is something physical we can see with our eyes, and yet it has a deeper spiritual reality in terms of enlightening us in regards to what is true about the physical universe. So there's a spiritual enlightenment that God gives us through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus that we come to the light that uh, John says that... Uh, in him, in Jesus, in the Logos, was light, and the light was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Yeah. So there's a, I think there's a dual meaning there in John that uh, that God creates light, and that uh, in, in in terms of the physical cosmos, for everything we do understand about light, there's a lot that we don't understand, but also in a spiritual sense, Wayne, that we prefer as as fallen immoral sinful creatures we prefer darkness to light and so the darkness does not comprehend how the light functions but in another way too jesus himself is you know how do you explain jesus as fully god and fully man yeah to me this 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 really kind of flies in the face of the idea that atheists bring up and skeptics that jesus was just a fabrication that the new testament was made up and i can imagine I don't think you could you could imagine a more nefarious character to present to first century Jews than a guy walking around your temple saying he's God in the flesh or saying that he is the I am of the Old Testament. I mean, how do you put a timeless being in a time-bound body, right? This is the centerpiece and hope of the Christian theology. How could one being be both human and divine yes it's like the struggle people had back in the 1700s or so figuring out what is light is it is it a particle or a wave well right it can be both it can be both i think of this as this is our kind of limited way of understanding things but it's it there is a real parallel with the nature of God and God is not limited to just being a spirit. He can be in human form like Jesus. The the interesting thing about the telescope, Wayne, and all the history that we're talking about is what develops I mean you you'd mentioned the Galileo's Christianity and a lot of these men were Christians. Um Herschel's and uh Huygens and uh, Newton, Kepler uh, probably Tycho, even though he was a little, a little worldly. But the idea that what has what has grown in the last couple of centuries since the development of the telescope is this idea that think about the tools of science that we use to understand the universe, Wayne. When you build a tool, you're building it upon an assumption that you want to answer a question: what's out there, right? And you build a tool, but the tools that are built for science, most of them, are to detect physical things in the physical cosmos. We want to find 
you know, maybe in Newton's day, they wanted to find the corpuscle or Huygens wanted to find the wave or you build the James Webb and you want to find objects reflecting infrared light or you build a large Hadron Collider and you want to find particles. The assumption of our tools in, in big cosmology and physics, a lot of the tools that we build to uncover things like uh, there's a there's a detector in a mine in in the Dakotas somewhere. I think it's in the Dakotas looking for dark energy or dark matter particles. I'm not sure which, but the the whole assumption is that dark energy and dark matter are made up of particles. And if they are particles, we need to build a detector to find the particles. And so far, there's been no dark matter or dark energy particles that have appeared in this detector. But the assumption is, I think, at base, Wayne, we've gotten away from the Christian theology that undergirded these, these men's investigation of the cosmos. And now the assumption is that physical reality at its heart is purely physical or nothing but physicality, nothing but stuff, that stuff can explain stuff, stuff comes from stuff. But the more we build our instruments and the more we look into space and the more we look into the universe and see things, we're starting to see that that maybe reality at its foundation, science seems to be coming to a... I, I don't think this is a unanimous by any stretch of the means in big science, but I was just talking, I just interviewed a theoretical chemist who did a PhD in uh, in quantum cosmology, and he worked at Duke and Harvard, I think, and he said, you know, when he was in the field, uh, a lot of his colleagues were becoming more and more comfortable with the idea that at the foundational level, reality is not physical, that there are things and for which we can't build tools to detect the more we delve into the quantum world and the more we see the, the relevance of mathematics to our cosmology, the more and more it looks like that the reality at its base is fundamentally immaterial, uh-huh. which perf- perfectly coincides with a theological, a Christian worldview that God is spirit and that the physical world didn't come out of basically pulling itself up by its own bootstraps. Matter didn't create matter. Energy didn't create energy. Right. Uh, it comes from from God, who is who is spirit, and uh, so it's really fascinating. I think that uh, there's nothing wrong. Of course, we're not saying that you shouldn't build a telescope, but you 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 understand that the telescope is was originally created to 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 see things that we could see with our eyes, and then we started to notice things that we couldn't see with our eyes, and so we built instruments based on the idea that there was invisible light. We found all the invisible light. And now the more we stare into the cosmos, it looks like the behavior of the stuff we can see is governed by things that we can't see and cannot presently explain. Yes, and uh, so it's been a process of human beings making more and more ways of kind of uh, working around our own limitations. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to see things that we can't see with our, our own eyes. Right, uh, things right. that are too far away, or too dim, or too bright, or they're they're in the infrared, or the X rays, or the gamma rays, and we want to see what's what is there. So we right. use all of these things and all these different tools that we've come up with to get around our own limitations. Yeah, I thought it would be interesting, Wayne. Uh, one telescope that we must mention, or we we must not neglect. Uh, to, to mention would be the uh, 100-inch Hooker telescope on the top 
of Mount Wilson in California. Okay. Uh, that was the telescope, as you know, that Edwin Hubble used to finally figure out if the spiral galaxies that we saw in the telescopes at the time, this was 100 years ago, were clouds like Harlow Shapley, an astronomer that was a, a colleague of Hubble's, were in a debate. Shapley and Hubble were in a debate. Shapley believed that the spiral things, we, we now know them as galaxies, but Shapley believed they were nebulae. Hubble and Shapley were debating whether these nebulae, the realm of the nebulae, were those clouds in our own Milky Way? Or were those galaxies as we know our own galaxy to be? In other words, yes. which were they? Which were they? And so Shapley and Hubble were debating this. So Shap uh, Hubble was a boxer. He was kind of chuffed and he smoked a pipe. And he, he and later in life, I think he, he said he developed an English accent he created for himself. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I think that's true. But uh, he had a lot of time on the, uh, on the Hooker 100-inch telescope. Now – the Hooker 100-inch that Hubble used uh, settled the debate between he and Harlow. And, uh, of course, it was astonishing, but using the Hooker 100-inch telescope, Hubble discovered that Andromeda was a galaxy like our own, some 2.5 million light years away. But uh, at the time of the discovery, 1920s, uh, the Hooker 100-inch was... Um, the largest refracting telescope in the world at the time. Yeah. So the glass that was made for this telescope was made by a company in France that made wine bottles. Okay. And yeah, so this thing weighed a few tons. And it was at first rejected because it had bubbles in it that they couldn't they couldn't smooth out. And so at first, uh, Mr. Hooker, who financed the whole thing, thought, oh, what a waste, you know. Um, but they went back to looking at the glass originally and thought the bubbles were not going to be a problem. And they turned out that they that they weren't. So um, the 100-inch the, the was, was, was built. All the stuff had to be carried up to the top of Mount Wilson. This is the 1920s. Yeah. By the backs of pack animals, donkeys. Oh, my. And so every piece of that telescope was was uh, was hand carried, or if you will, animal carried, up uh, up the mountain. So so a winemaker, a wine bottle maker in France, uh, donkeys, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all of this stuff comes together to make the world's leading telescope that that, that basically changes our perception of the universe. And and Wayne, think about this. I think that's that's fitting because I think it reminds me when I read about the donkeys. I'm trying to um, imagine the telescope parts on on the back of donkeys. <laughs> I think they had to be small. I don't know how they got the mirror up there. Actually, I'd have to go back and find out. Yeah. But, uh, um, I mean, who else rode a donkey that changed our perception of the universe? <laughs> Can you think of somebody? Uh, you know, so so how fitting, you know. Um, but so so Hubble discovers Andromeda using he he finds a variable star that tells him this is not a cloud in our Milky Way, but a distant galaxy like our own. And he writes to Shapley and he says, "Dear Shapley, um, I've discovered a variable star in Andromeda." And uh, Hub, uh, Shapley is believed to have said, 
Here is the letter that destroyed my universe. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the day, uh, as Marcia Bartusiak, a science writer, says in her book, that's the day we discovered the universe. Just a hundred years ago, the idea that, that galaxies were were not nebulae in our own Milky Way, but they were distant island universes like our own. Yeah. This actually blew people away. And so Hubble, as you know back then, when they took pictures of these things, they used negatives on glass plates uh-huh. etched, in a, etched in a kind of um, acid, I think. They, they developed the negative on glass plates. So Hubble was showing these pictures to a visiting uh, poet from England. Edith, Edith Sitwell was her name. And Hubble is showing her these glass plates and telling her the significance of what she's looking at. And her reaction was, how terrifying. Like, my goodness, how how big, how massive, how fantastically <laughs> awe-inspiring is space. If that is a galaxy like our own and that there's how, – how, who knows how many galaxies that, that are out there. We now know that there are far more than even Hubble understood them to be. But Yeah, uh, and Dan, I don't have the, the details of this now, but uh, – it was a long time before telescopes were good enough to see the spiral arms of a galaxy. That's right. That's uh, right. It took mm-hmm. a long time of improving telescopes before telescopes got that good. Right, right, right. Well, and um, then of course Hubble. This is the, and of course who could we can't leave out the uh, the fantastic story of a space telescope. It was actually conceived by Lyman Spitzer. There was the Spitzer Space Telescope, but Lyman Spitzer was actually the one who conceived of a floating telescope originally yeah. in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And then he, he lived to see the Hubble launch in the back of the space shuttle and go up into operation in, in the 90s, in the 1990s when it was. But how, what, a, what a bummer it was when they opened Hubble and they found a lens aberration problem. Yeah. Uh, the mirror that was ground uh, for Hubble was ground incorrectly and so the images were distorted and they had to send astronauts up to fix it the people at nasa figured a way to correct the aberration with um different technology without having to take the whole thing apart and grind the mirror but astronauts go up in the space shuttle and they fix the uh, space telescope and it's working wonders so the really what puts hubble on the map Bob Williams, the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland in the mid-90s, he was the director. So he had he had telescope discretion time. So basically, Bob could use the telescope however he wanted for 10% of the year. So Bob decides, you know, I'm about ready to retire. <laughs> Dangerous way to start a scientific experiment. He's like, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the telescope and I'm going to shoot it at a blank spot of sky and the Big Dipper. Uh-huh. See what happens. Now, this isn't much after the Hubble, the telescope went through the embarrassment of being uh, techno- the, the, the mirror problem. So now, this is a, a huge stunt for Bob. If this goes wrong, you know, forget all astronomers are kind of holding their breath, kind of lowering their head, going, what are you doing, Bob? You know, and uh, it was risky for him, to say the least, after the, the failure of the mirror for him to point the telescope at a dark spot of sky in the Big Dipper where there was nothing, at least visibly to us. Yeah. This was in 1995, 90, I think. So the, the Hubble goes around the Earth every 90 minutes. And so for 10 days, 
he did a uh, you know in the world of photography he he opened the aperture and let light in same spot of sky i don't know how many orbits it took to do that but they take a picture of this and uh you know the world kind of the world of astronomy kind of held their breath okay bob what are you doing i mean if it came back that there was nothing in the images then uh there goes bob's career bob's like you know i'm about to retire i don't care and of course what i'm talking about most of you already know our listeners we're talking about one of the most amazing discoveries there in the 20th century at the end of the 20th century or of all time that in that blank spot of sky just off the handle of the big dipper where to the visible eye there was nothing uh the hubble uncovered three thousand galaxies that no one had ever seen before yeah uh, and they at at a, at a conference when the images were revealed, uh, Williams is said that we don't know the significance of this yet. But at that moment, people had to. We were talking about at the beginning of the broadcast about counting the stars. Of course, stars, galaxies are are islands of stars. So now we have whatever our census was in 1995 of how many galaxies and stars there were. We now had to sort of add to that. <laughs> Because the spot of sky where there was 3,000 galaxies discovered by Hubble is no bigger than basically the head of a pin held out yeah. at arm's length. And, um, of course, later, uh, Matt Mountain, when he was the director of the Space Telescope Science Institute, men will be men, boys will be boys with their toys, he recreated the same experiment in the constellation of Fornax in the furnace. I forgot what year this was. But... Matt reproduced, based on his predecessor's risk, Matt reproduced the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. 10,000 galaxies in a spot of sky, no bigger than the head of a pin, or Lincoln's eye held at arm's length. So now, Wayne, if you took uh, just, I mean, listeners go outside and hold up the head of a pin or Lincoln's eye over your head outside and think that every Lincoln's eye space from your vantage point is filled with thousands of galaxies. Start doing the math, as Jesus says to Abram. Count the stars if you're able. But <laughs> but God knows how many numbers there are. He he knows the names and the yes. numbers of every one of those stars, and that just gives you a glimpse of not only what our telescope technology is capable of doing, but what God has allowed us to discover about the cosmos, even though many people who do these do the science there don't acknowledge him. But for, for Christians it should be comforting, awe-inspiring. It should engender worship and thankfulness. That that there's nothing, Wayne, that any telescope from Galileo to the Space Telescope Science Institute, NASA, James Webb. There's no telescope. There hasn't been anything in the telescope, Wayne, that has contradicted anything in the pages of the Bible. I agree with that, and. Uh, uh astronomy and all the more we discover from it it just underscores god's greatness more and more and shows that god is so so above and beyond us and it should motivate us to just have reverence for him and worship him we should want to know him and it's incredible it's remarkable that as great as god is that he cares about each one of us and of course he uh, God became one of us when Jesus was born and he was laid in a feeding trough uh, lived a, a human life 
and died in our place through mm-hmm. the Roman crucifixion so that mm-hmm. we can have a way to God. Mm-hmm. And as uh, my favorite psalm, a couple of my favorite psalms, Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is declaring his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. Uh, Wayne, I want to mention this uh, in relation to, we kind of, we didn't really get into it, but there's so much about the lives of William and Caroline Herschel, um, late 18th, early 19th century. Uh, Herschel was a prolific telescope maker and a prolific observer of stars. He discovered binary stars. Uh-huh. Um, people that, like Galileo before him, people didn't believe that there were such a thing as binary stars, but uh, Herschel's like, no, look. Um, yeah. King George the Third was a patron of of uh, Herschel and um it is said that when uh, Herschel had built a a 40 foot tube for a reflecting telescope that he used only sparingly because the metal his alloy was mostly copper and it had to be polished and there was a lot of difficulty in operating a, a tube that was 40 feet high but <laughs> yeah. uh one day king george along with the archbishop of england came to Herschel where he was making the telescope. And it is said that King George III looked at the archbishop and said, while the telescope was under construction, he's like, come, archbishop, come, and I will show you the way to heaven, and walked inside the <laughs> telescope that uh, Herschel was building. So I thought that was kind of funny. But, uh, I've heard but, that. Uh, but it, yeah, and it, it's all a testament to, uh, to the glory of God, as we said, that uh, the heavens... Uh, in that passage in Isaiah, Isaiah forty twenty six, uh, the forty twenty seven is important because God's talking about the stars in twenty six, and He says not one of them is missing. I number them all. I call them all by name. Not one of them is missing. And the next verse, He's asking Jacob, which is a rhetorical question, really, I think, for all of us. Why do you say, Jacob, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? So if if I number all the stars and I know them all by name and not one of them is missing how why would I think why would I not be considering you Jacob or you Wayne or you Daniel and this is what caused David to marvel in Psalm 8 when I think of the heavens doing exactly what Isaiah is asking is commanding God is commanding through Isaiah looking at the heavens David says when I think of the heavens I'm paraphrasing. I marvel at your care for me, God. Why would you care for me? Yes. When I think of the heavens, why would you think of me? And that's – so David in Psalm 8 is doing what Isaiah is proclaiming in Psalm – in Isaiah 40, 26 and 27. A contemplation of the heavens should should give us the consideration of God's love and faithfulness and his care for us. Jeremiah 31 as well. That um, Jesus, God says through the prophet, he says, uh, if this fixed order in the heavens should depart from me, so shall my, my, my covenant with Israel. And so the fixed order of the universe, the fixed order of the regularity of the planets, the sun, moon, and the stars, should remind us. We're created to remind us of God's covenantal, faithful love to us, uh, especially for us as Christians through Christ, that God is faithful to us even when we are faithless. He cannot deny himself. So the stars are there for for believers for very practical reasons uh, to declare God's glory 
and uh, to remind us of his love and care for us. Yes. Any other uh, reflections about telescopes, Wayne? Well, telescope <laughs> technology has become very technical and advanced, and uh, it takes a lot of really good engineering to build a telescope. And the pointing of the telescope, the controlling it so that it doesn't vibrate or shake, and uh, there's a lot of elaborate effort uh, that's gone to you know, really big telescope mirrors are made in segments and then you have when you have a mirror that's in segments then you have to uh, have control on those segments so that the shape of the whole mirror is correct then you get into what's called adaptive optics to adjust the shape of a mirror that's fascinating that's what the James Webb is all about that's it's that's really sophisticated yeah. Mechanical how many mirrors? How many mirrors are on the web, James Webb? Um, I think it's sixteen, and they're all independently controlled. Yes, to be able to focus on the the light that's, that's yes. in it. That is that is absolutely amazing, and it is it is it is an achievement. But I think Wayne too, as fantastic as telescope technology has become, I think over the years people have lost. Sorry, here it comes another one. Focus. <laughs> about what <laughs> about why we're looking at these things in the first place because from Galileo we see that he is pleased that God is revealing his creation to him but by the time we get to James Webb a lot of the people who have the telescope time are no longer thinking of the universe in terms of God's glory but in terms of our technological achievements and so when uh, James Webb unveiled its first images people were just as, if not more, impressed with the technology of the telescope than they were about what the telescope was seeing. Now, this brings to mind uh, something that uh, I experienced personally. Remember in 2018, Wayne, we had uh, a Hubble Space Telescope scientist come to speak about his work with Hubble at uh, the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. This was in 2018. And uh, I remember... Dr. K telling me when I was thinking of promoting the project, I was going to put a picture of the Hubble Space Telescope on our flyer to promote the event. Uh, Dr. K reminded me very gently because he was a Christian. He said, um, it's not about the telescope. It's about what we're looking at. So God still has yes. Christians in places uh, doing good work. It's not that all of science is is without hope, but... But it, but in the advent of the last 400 years since the first telescope, we have lost focus, lost sight of why we're looking at the heavens in the first place. And so now the James Webb and NASA tell us that we want to know where we came from, who we are, what's happening to the universe. But they're, they're thinking that the telescope can answer our deepest questions about our origins. And this gets back to the presupposition that it's all just stuff. But no telescope technology is going to tell us where we came from, who we are, or what our position is in the cosmos, or why we're even here. That that our technology just can't do that. That's not those aren't scientific questions that can be settled by looking through the lens of a telescope, no matter how sophisticated. So it all depends. Here's another one. Sorry about this, everybody. Another dad joke. It all depends on the lens through which you are looking. <laughs> yes. So. In terms of 
how you conclude what the universe is all about. Yes, and, and what you what you are putting your faith in. Exactly. Technology or the one who created everything. Yes. And increasingly in our technological age, mo- many more people are putting their faith in what tools we might be able to build for ourselves, trying to save ourselves in a sense, trying to um, discern and understand ourselves using the tools of our technology. But the very questions that we want answers to aren't going to come from lenses or mirrors, Wayne. They can't. Yeah. They, they can't because we're the ones that have made these things. And, uh, you know, to me when an atheist says, well, the, the, the telescopes don't show us God, I'm like, well, do you think a telescope, something that we've made, would be capable of showing God? No, I mean, they show his handiwork, but I mean, there's nothing in science because a scientist would have to know what God looks like in order to build a device to detect God. And that's just silly. There's nothing and nowhere in science anywhere where any tool that we make is going to be capable of detecting God's existence. And so it's not a matter of, oh, well, our technology can't discern God, therefore God must not be there. No, no. It's your presupposition. It's your lens, the worldview. Yes. Is it naturalism or theism through which you're looking at the universe. And that, that uh, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, the way you perceive the universe all depends upon where you are standing, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. How you, how you interpret it, how you look at it. I think we have uh, – we certainly haven't been exhaustive in our contemplating telescopes, but I think we did a good – a pretty good timeline of all the major – a lot of the major uh, – Developments and details. Of course, we left a lot out. Uh, there's a lot more that can be done. I'll put the uh, links to some of the resources that we have. Well, Wayne, uh, Merry Christmas to you. Yes, and, and Merry uh, Christmas to our listeners. Merry Christmas to our faithful Good Heavens listeners. Some of you have been with us for six years, the whole time we've been on the air. Yes. And uh, I hope next year in 2024 we get back to doing a couple episodes, Old School Good Heavens, where we go to a cafe. And uh, those were kind of fun. I kind of miss those days. Yeah, we need to find uh, a good spot. Yeah. A good spot where we can do that. Um, and I think we might. Uh, so be looking forward to some old school good heavens next year, uh, cafe style. Uh, and uh, drop us a line if there's a topic you'd like us to cover and uh, throw about. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, but until next time, until next year, Wayne, <laughs> we will see you again right here on... Good heavens. Good heavens. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is Good Heavens, a podcast exploring the wonders of God's heavenly creation. Mm-hmm.